0: So glad to see you today. Last week um, I was out of town and um, it happened to be a day when uh, I would need to experience a lot of healing in my life. uh, Because uh, I want to say thanks to everyone who has the ability to find my phone number and text me whenever my cowboys lose. But it's amazing how you never text me for any other time. Like lunch or, you know, something like that. Um, but uh, I am healed, I'm better now, Um, but it was a great game, and uh, congratulations to you Packer fans, I hope you die in peace. (laughs) Um, You know, two weeks ago we started this series uh, where we're looking at the reality that uh, stuff happens in our lives that we're not in control of. And we kicked it off by looking at a classic statement from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter um, uh, chapter 8, verse 28, I believe is where the passage picks up. And it says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. And we saw all things happen to people, whether we're believers and followers of Jesus or not. We all live in the same world. We all deal with the same situations every day. Things don't always work out. But God is at work in all things. That's the good news. God is working for our good. What this doesn't mean is it doesn't mean that I get the circumstances that I always want. It means that God wants to do good things in my character. And he wants to produce in my character uh, the qualities and the character of Jesus. That means also that he wants to take the bad stuff and he wants to produce good stuff out of the bad stuff for everybody who loves him. But he's also, this is how much God loves people, is God is working not only good for people who love him, but for people who don't love him. And we talked about how we can not only, you know, think about this or guess or hope about it, but we can actually know this for a fact. So in this series, if you're just catching up with us, we're learning how to find God in our lives no matter what happens, stuff happens. Today is a really important topic because today is something that God gives us that we do not control. The best way I can put it is healing happens. A few weeks ago, Robin and I took our daughter Sabrina and our future son-in-law to dinner and because we had the grand puppy with us, uh, we took them somewhere where we could sit outside. You know, it's a big thing now. You can take your dog with you to, to dinner. And the dog, whose name is Rowena from uh, Harry Potter, was on a leash sitting underneath the table. And at one point, she must have got kind of excited about seeing a lizard or something. And she just jumped and started running to the edge of the patio. Well, as she did, her leash cut across my leg and my body began to respond immediately there's a process called nociception and it sent tremendous signals to my brain basically saying you're in bad pain and you better get up before your leg gets cut off okay Then at that exact moment, little platelets went to the area where the wound was and it actually began to clot that wound automatically. It both stops the bleeding and it actually keeps infection from getting into the body. Then the next phase is what is called polymorphonuclear neutrophils. Had to practice that all week. (laughs) They flood into that particular area of the wound. They begin to eat bacteria up. They did that for a couple of days. They're kind of like the little heroes of a wound. And then something called macrophages come like little Pac-Man, and they eat those up. And then there's a final phase of healing. They actually call it the remodeling phase, and that's where new tissue takes over for the old tissue. Now, here's what's astounding about this to me, is my body did all that, And I don't understand any of it. Somehow, I did it. But I didn't do it. (laughs) Healing happened. And I learned two great lessons from this experience. One of them is never take a dog with you to eat. That's the first thing. The second lesson, and much more important, is healing happens. It is not in my control. Now, it's not always, listen, what I want Not always where I want, not always how I want. In fact, sometimes healing leaves a scar. Sometimes it leaves a limp. But it's an amazing thing about our world that healing happens. And it's not just in our body. Think about this, friends. Go through any part of the earth that has uh, has experienced a tremendous fire. Everything is just charred and ugly. But if you look closely, you'll see a little miracle happening because throughout that charred land, there's little green sprouts that begin to shoot up. In fact, I read a couple of weeks ago where giant sequoia trees, especially those you find out west, in their pine cones, their pine cones, the seeds that will release new life, they will only let go of that if there's a tremendous fire. Think about that. Somehow God has built into nature, into the way the world works, into the way the earth works, healing. I'm going to tell you a little group of people who figured this out, maybe before anybody. It's a nation called Israel. And a long time ago, they, became, they came to believe that this whole thing of healing said something really significant about the kind of being God is. Here's what I found about people. One of the ways you can divide people up in this world is that they're either a saver or they're a thrower. Okay? Now, here's what I mean by that. If something breaks down, throwers just say, get rid of it, toss it out, it's done. Every marriage has one of each of these usually. A buddy of mine was talking about this with me. He said he and his wife had brought their little girl a goldfish And a couple of days later, the fish was looking kind of listless and not swimming around too much. And he said to his wife, he said, I think that goldfish is not doing well. And immediately his wife said, just get rid of it. We'll get another goldfish. A few days later, he had a piece of furniture that's been in his family for many, many years. The upholstery was ripped. The arm was kind of broken on the side. And he said to his wife, he said, the chair's not doing well. She said, just get rid of it. We can buy another chair just exactly like it. Next day, my buddy got a bad case of the flu. Wasn't doing well. He told me, man, he said, I wasn't saying a word. (laughs) I knew which category she was already in. How many of you are savers here? Any savers? How about the throwers? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Usually you're married. Here's what I want you to know. In Israel, they came to believe that God is a saver. When God made stuff and it breaks down, he always wants to tend to save it. This means that God is a healer. It's one of the reasons that healing happens. Now, they would express this in some wonderful, wonderful ways. One of the ways they would do that is through Scripture. Isaiah, or Exodus chapter 19 says, You yourselves have seen What I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Think about that. It's a great picture. If a mommy had a a tiny bald eagle, a little eagle, and it's too little to fly or if something happens and its wings get broken, it's not working. They just take that little eagle and they tuck it under its wings. And it can fly with its mom. A guy named Ray Vanderlaan has talked a lot about this, written a lot about it. He says, over time, this picture of God's wings became an important image of God's protection and God's healing. In fact, the psalmist said, and this is a really key passage, he will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. In other words, our God is a healer. Now, there's a really cool word in the Hebrew language. The word for wing, like being under God's wing, is the word kanaf. It's also the word that is used for the corner of a garment. Let me explain. Uh, A rabbi, a devout uh, Jewish rabbi, would always wear a prayer shawl. In fact, they do uh, to this day. And at the bottom of these prayer shawls, there would be little tassels on them. And all of those tassels would be there to remind them of the commandments of God because these commandments were something that offered them protection and healing. In fact, rabbis would eventually come and say, we obey these commandments because they are for the healing of the world. And the little corners of the prayer shawl were what were called kanafs. And over time, there was a wonderful tradition that was born in Israel, and the prophet Malachi expressed this very beautifully. When he wrote, unto you that fear my name, shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. In other words, the Messiah is going to come one day, and in his kanaf, in his prayer shawl, in the corners of his garment, there would be healing in his wings. Now, this has been around for a long time. In fact, at Christmas time, just a few weeks ago, we sang a carol together. Remember the carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing? Remember that carol? Well, one of the lines in that Christmas carol is, Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings healing happens. They believed this to their core in Israel. And every once in a while, in some very remarkable ways, there would be miracles. Now, they didn't happen all the time, every single day. But at certain times, when God wanted to kind of reveal something about himself or about his kingdom, people would be healed. In fact, one time there was a king named Hezekiah in the Old Testament. He received healing. There was another guy who, not even from Israel, named Naaman, who was healed of leprosy. And then one day, as we get to the New Testament, this rabbi named Jesus comes into the world. And people knew him as this great teacher, but they also knew him as healer. Now this is uh, fundamental to understanding his ministry, because Jesus is going to give us a little foretaste of what God is going to finally do when he heals this world completely. And one day, this is part of his story, found in the Gospel of Mark. It says a large crowd followed and pressed around Jesus, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet, instead of getting better, she grew worse. Now, this is a wonderful passage because it gives us a little glimpse sometimes into the world of the Gospels. This, as I said, is from the Gospel of Mark. But this same story is recorded in three different Gospels. Luke also tells this story, but Luke tells it, and you can look it up later, it's a little bit different. He leaves out the part about the woman suffering a great deal under the care of many doctors and the fact that she had lost all her money trying to be healed with the doctor's. Anybody want to guess why? Luke happens to be a doctor. Luke just said, I ain't mentioning that stuff in my part. So he kind of leaves it out. Imagine being this woman. Imagine 12 years of your life. She suffered physically, probably from anemia. She's weak. No energy. She suffers financially. She's lost her money. Everything is gone. Probably a beggar now. She suffers spiritually. The law in the Old Testament was very clear about this. If she was in a state where there was a problem of bleeding, if it was constant, they would consider her unclean. That would mean anything or anyone she touched was unclean. That meant the bed where she slept was unclean. It meant the chair in which she sat was unclean. If you sat on that chair, you would become unclean. There was kind of a stigma attached to this. She would have heard I'm sure stupid things that people say when someone is suffering. Things like if you had more faith or if you know you had not sinned or you know you must have done something wrong. God must be displeased with you or you would be better. She has to live with that kind of stuff for 12 years. I think about her being a mom. Most women in that day were mothers. It means she couldn't touch her children. If she did, they would be unclean. Imagine never tucking your kids into bed, never hugging them. You know, a little kid, when it whacks his hand with a hammer or something he's playing with, they always want to take that finger to mom. And what do they want mom to do with that finger? Of course. Kiss it, make it better. She can never do that. There's a good chance she's married. Her husband cannot touch her. If he does, he is unclean. Who knows, maybe by now she's even lost her marriage. We don't know. But I'm sure every night she prays and she goes to bed and she does what many of you have done in your life. You've said, God, please heal me. And every morning she wakes up and she thinks, maybe today, maybe today is the day. And then she hears about this rabbi, this healer who is coming. And the passage says, when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought if i touch his clothes i will be here i will be healed she gets this crazy crazy scheme she hears the healer is coming to town and she thinks if i can touch him maybe i can get something good from him now here's a loose association okay there was a woman in the early days of television that was always coming up with crazy crazy schemes Anybody remember a woman named Lucy? Anybody here remember I Love Lucy? What a great show. But any time a celebrity or a well-known guy was coming into her world, she would get this crazy harebrained scheme. She would disguise herself or do something sneaky just to be with that person, but she never wanted her husband Ricky to find out. Remember that? And of course, Ricky always found out, and Ricky always would say the same thing to her. Remember what he would say? Lucy, you've got some explaining to do. Right. Well, this woman, we'll call her Lucy for today, gets this crazy idea. I'm going to track Jesus down, and I'm going to get healed. And she approaches Jesus, which is pretty bold by itself, but she approaches him from behind. All three stories in the gospel tell it. She comes from behind because she's afraid. I've got to touch him. Think about touch for a second. Touch is something we do with somebody that we love. I had two uh, brothers and a sister growing up. And when we were little, if we wanted something from my mom and she wouldn't pay attention to us, we would just start patting her over and over. Mom, 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 mom. You ever do that? There's something about touching somebody. If you guys get a little bored this morning, just start tapping the person next to you. See what happens. (laughs) She gets this idea, if I could just touch his clothes. Now, why does this thought occur to her? Well, to me, this is awesome. It's not just his clothes. It's the corner of his prayer shawl. His kanaf. It very well may be that this woman is thinking, this is the one with healing in his wings. If I could just touch his kanaf. If I could just touch the corner of his garment. And then it happens. Mark says immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from suffering. There's this unbelievable electrifying moment where she feels normal again. Where she feels well again. Where she feels whole again. I got what I came for. And she tries to sneak back out the same way she came in. But Lucy got some explaining to do. (laughs) At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear. This is an incredible story. One of the things I like about this is that it shows Jesus' divinity and his humanity at the same time. He knows that someone's touched him. He knows that, uh, you know, virtue has left his body. He knows that God has done something. But because he's human, he doesn't know who necessarily. He doesn't know who received that touch. So he says, who touched me? And disciples, are you kidding me, Jesus? Look around here. All these people crowding you. What do you mean, who touched you? And you just said, no, someone touched me. He looks around, and evidently he looks at this woman. And she falls at his feet, scared to death. She has made the rabbi unclean. And there's this amazing phrase. She told him the whole truth. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there for this? I just want to say to anybody in this room today who needs healing of any kind in your life, any type, you only really get healing when you tell God the whole truth. I don't know what she said. Maybe she said, I gave up a long time ago. Jesus, I lost my faith. I lost my way. I haven't prayed like I should. I haven't been who I should be. I've lost all my money. I'm a failure financially and spiritually and physically. I broke the law. I made you unclean. And there she stands, shaking like a leaf. And then Jesus says something, and I promise you, she hasn't been called this in a long time. He says to her daughter, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. What he says here is that you are a daughter of God. Now, why does Jesus do this? I mean, the woman got healing. I mean, that's what she wanted. She had been suffering. Why does he feel the need to kind of call her out and embarrass her? Why does he make her talk face to face with him? Because he doesn't always do that. Maybe it's because Jesus wants her to have more than just physical healing. Maybe he wants her to know the healer. Perry Noble puts it like this. He says, with Jesus, it's okay to not be okay. With Jesus, it's okay to not be okay. With Jesus, everybody is welcome and nobody is perfect and anything is possible. That's what we say at our church, right? That's what we say about Oasis. It's okay to not be okay. In fact, I'll say this. Jesus specializes in people who are not okay. In fact, if you are okay, you're probably not going to do really well with Jesus. I'll tell you why. At the beginning of this story, and this is really important to understanding it, there was a wealthy synagogue leader named Jairus. And he comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus, he says, will you come to my house and heal someone who is sick in my house? And as they're on their way, they're interrupted by this woman, this anonymous woman that we just talked about. And this is pretty, you know, happens often in the Gospels where Jesus is on his way and someone kind of interrupts him. But this is kind of funny. In the Gospel of Mark, Mark does this on several occasions, he kind of stuffs a story inside of a story. They call it a Markin' sandwich. But in Luke... Luke does this, and people often refer to it as a Luke and Twinkie. You learned something new today you didn't know, right? Do they teach you stuff in theology? And what it means is there's kind of a surprise within the surprise. What you have to do is you have to ask, why are these people put together? What's the relationship between the two? There's something deeper going on here. Here's the contrast between the two. Jairus gets there first. He's a man. He's a leader. He's got money because he has servants. He has status. He's a synagogue leader. On the other hand, we have a story of a woman. She doesn't even get a name in the story. She's anonymous. She's lost all her money. She's considered unclean. So we have Jairus who is a somebody and we have this woman who is a nobody. We have Jairus who is a somebody and Lucy who's a nobody. And what Jesus is trying to tell us here is that with him, nobodies become somebodies. He's going to help Jairus, yes. But he's also going to help this nobody. In the kingdom... Nobody is a nobody. And I want you to know this morning that if you're in the kingdom, you're not a nobody. I have no idea what you need healing with. I have no idea where you're hurting today. I have no idea all that's going on in your life. I just know this, healing happens. In just a few moments, in fact, we're going to give you an opportunity to approach God and in community seek healing but before we do I just want to ask you will you get clarity in your heart and mind where you need God to touch you I want to tell you about my life many years ago I was a very young youth pastor and as a young youth pastor I didn't have much balance in my life I spent way too many hours at church in fact on average, I would probably spend sometimes 70, 80 hours of my life trying to build the kingdom every week. But what I didn't realize was there was something inside of me that was broken. I didn't have a clue what it was, but it was there. And eventually, all those crazy hours and all those you know, um, times when I wasn't at home and I was at the church, all those nonstop activities caught up with me. I started having panic attacks, and I mean severe panic attacks. First one I ever had was right in the middle of a wedding I was officiating for some dear friends of mine. You ever see one of those funny videos where the groom faints and passes out? Well, I can promise you that's exactly what almost happened to me. I was this close to hitting the floor. These attacks hit me so hard, oftentimes in the middle of the night, and if you've ever had one of these, you know how awful they are. I literally thought I was going to die. Finally I went to my doctor at the time and they ran all these tests. They asked a million questions. And finally he sat me down and he said to me, he said, Phil, here's the deal. There is literally physically nothing wrong with you. I can't really help you other than to prescribe some anti-anxiety medicine, which by the way, some people I realize need and, and should utilize. But he said, I really want you to go and sit down and talk with someone because I think you need to talk to a counselor. Now, this was the weirdest thing to me. (laughs) This is one of the great ironies in being a pastor. I had told tons of people, tons of people, they needed to go see a counselor. I'd even referred people to counselors. But now that I was being confronted with the need to go to a therapist, I was in total denial. It's the weirdest thing. It was okay for me to be a pastor and me to serve and all that stuff, but I was never actually going to go see one of those people myself. Well, one night I ended up in the emergency room and I remember telling God, laying there on that cold emergency room bed, that if you will help me, I will go to five counselors a week. (laughs) I'll do whatever I need to do. So I did. I went to a good counselor. I told someone the whole truth. I want to tell you something. There are people who go through their whole lives, their whole lives, and they never get to tell another person the truth. There was so much junk in me, I didn't even realize. There was a need for my uh, approval, For me to receive approval, there was a need to please people in my life. There was a fear of failure, a big fear of failure. And there was a need to succeed no matter what in my life. And I began to regurgitate all that stuff out. And it wasn't pretty, but here's the deal. God began a healing in my life. Now here's the deal, it's not complete yet. We haven't fully arrived yet to that place where God's going to heal everything. There's been setbacks, there's been... You know, scars, there's been some pain. But what I want you to know is that God heals. J.R.R. Tolkien, the guy who wrote the Lord of the Rings series, he loved the idea that God was a healer. I don't know if you know this, but Tolkien was a, a Christ follower. If you ever read any of his works, you know the image of wounding and scars is very predominant. The wounds that Frodo and Gollum bore from carrying the ring and the land that was wounded in Mordor and the tree people, the Ents, these great people and the you know, scouring of the, of the Shriar. Over and over again, there's this image of a wound that needs to be healed. And Tolkien has this powerful line. He says, for it is said in old lore, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer and so shall the rightful king be known. The hands of the king are the hands of a healer. And he writes about how in the ancient world, people would often think of the kings as having the power to heal because of their greatness and their power and their authority, their strength. But there was one king that came along, risen with healing in his wings. And this king does not heal from a position of strength or power or authority. Scripture says surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. By the head that bore a crown of thorns and bled. By the back that bore a splintered cross. By a side that was pierced with a sword so the blood and water gushed out. By hands that had nails driven through them. The hands of our king are the hands of the healer. At the beginning of this series, we asked um, those of you who would to share some stories about what has happened in your life. And today, I'd like you to listen, I think, to a couple of really powerful ones about what happens. Whatever happens, sometimes healing happens as well.
1: Angela Waddell, and um, my earliest memories are from a hospital bed. I was four years old and had been diagnosed with Steven Johnson syndrome. Steven Johnson syndrome is a severe and rare aller- allergy reaction that affects skin and mucous membranes. I'd had a severe reaction to penicillin, and I was covered head to toe in painful blisters, including in my mouth and eyelids. It's like your body burns from the inside out. I remember the scars all over and never being able to leave my hospital room. I remember always wanting to eat with the other kids in the hospital, but never being able to because my immune system was compromised. One of my memories is that each day the nurse would let me choose which scar to get my shot in, which now seems like a pretty sick game. my my condition continued to worsen and i became completely blind which is one of the side effects of Steven johnson syndrome a few weeks after i went blind the doctor told my mother that he did not think i would survive and that if i did survive i would never regain my sight and would require multiple plastic surgeries to deal with the scars from the burns one article i read recently said that it is impossible to reverse the damage to eyes from Stephen Johnson syndrome. My mom was only 26 at the time, but my mama could pray. I remember being surrounded by her, my pastor and my church family. Uh, I think I have a permanent like stain on my forehead from all the anointing oil. But I remember my mom's gentle smile. I remember her reading scriptures, but more than anything, I remember her praying. She had endless faith that God could heal me. She believed and she prayed continually for a miracle. And then it happened. One early morning, my mom sleeping by my side, I woke up and began to take out my IV. I could see, I could see everything. My skin began healing and I soon left the hospital. I never had any surgeries and my eyesight was perfect. I was healed. God had healed me. It was the miracle my mom prayed for and believed would happen.
2: Hi, my name is Rachel. Um, I'm fairly new here, but I'm grateful for this chance to share. I remember the moment that I found out that my mother passed away. 1.31 a.m. on January 7th, 2012. I was 31, she had just turned 70, and losing her was the thing that I feared most in life. She'd been diagnosed with colon cancer six years before. Over those six years, life changed considerably. We spent our time going to medical appointments, rushing to the ER, and attempting to create some sense of fun and normalcy as everything in our lives shifted, became frenzied and tedious, painful and slow waiting, hoping, praying. My church, my parents' church, my colleagues, all of my friends prayed. Mm -hmm. I prayed at home, at work, on the floor of the hospital bathrooms, begging God to please heal my mother. I remember vividly the summer after mom's successful surgery. I was in Mexico on a mission trip and she was preparing for a six month checkup to see if she was still cancer free. An entire church laid their hands on me and declared that God would heal my mother. I came back full of hope, expecting the best possible test results, only to be devastated when I heard that the cancer had returned. Doubt crept in, is God really good? How can he be if healing didn't happen? I was angry for a while, lonely, bitter, terrified, and exhausted. It appeared as though the thing I feared most was going to happen, and it did. What I didn't understand then was the difference between healing and cure. I didn't realize that one was possible without the other. Between the return of cancer and my mom's passing, I watched her become more whole emotionally. I no longer saw her questioning whether she was loved. She knew it and accepted it. I no longer saw her worrying about appearance or acceptance. My mother's spirit was alive and becoming increasingly free. I saw wounds of a lifetime healed while her body was dying. When mom did pass, I returned to Pittsburgh where I'm from to walk into this new reality, this worst possible reality where the worst possible thing had happened. Mom had died and she had suffered for years and I saw and felt it all. But instead of thickening, the darkness and hopelessness that I feared would come after losing her started to dissipate. God surprised me with joy in the form of friends who weren't afraid to visit in the midst of my grief, in the form of my boyfriend, now husband, who though he never met my mother, walked with me through grief of losing her, and the messy family battles that came afterward with the division of property. Calmly, with humor and total acceptance, he was there in it all. And God surprised me with joy through memories, unexpectedly good memories, from the last year of Mom's life. It turns out that much of the healing my mother and I experienced happened in the most unexpected place, in the confines of a nursing home where Mom spent the last 13 months of her life. I can hear her singing hymns she learned as a child, even though chemo-induced dementia had stolen many of her memories. I remember laughing at mom's mischievous jokes, which only became more frequent after she felt safe and cared for in the home. And I remember sitting close to her on a couch in the common room hearing her say, I'm happy. But I have to tell you that most of my own healing occurred in the years after losing mom, and it happened at the feet of Jesus. Once a week, I attended a prayer service called Teze. During the singing, I would walk down the aisle, stop to light a candle in memory of mom, and sit at the feet of an icon of Christ on the cross. I felt drawn to him in a way that I never had before. I could see the pain in his eyes, so much pain. Each week, I would sit at his feet, staring into those haunting eyes, and weep. And I knew he was weeping with me over loss, over suffering, and over just how hard life is. This was true companionship. Jesus and I suffering together, comforting one another. I'm at the point now where my grief comes in waves, not as often as before, but I have to admit that now I welcome it. It feels like an old friend, and sometimes I worry that I'll lose it. I spent so much time sitting with Jesus in the midst of grief. It's a new intimacy that I didn't know before. I couldn't have imagined that there's so much beauty after so much pain.
0: thank you rachel and angela i'll say it again friends we are not in control of our lives but god is at work in all things so i ask you now where do you need the touch of jesus